Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and I'm very excited to have David Hayward with us, also known as the Naked Pastor. <laughs> David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. I am looking forward to this conversation. David is an author, a cartoonist, a former charismatic uh, pastor, including 15 years in the vineyard ministry. Uh, he has a master's of theological studies and years experience in the evangelical movement before he deconstructed. So, um, David, we have a lot in common. Uh, I was involved in the vineyard ministry and the charismatic movement for mm -hmm. many years on the East Coast and in California. Mm -hmm. And I really resonate with your story. And I love your cartoons. They are very encouraging, inspiring. And I've been using them for years, even in my deconstruction workshop that I have that helps people go through deconstructing, particularly evangelical Christianity, but any conservative Christianity. So cool. uh, we're going to get into your story and what you're doing now and what what's your passion and so forth. So I thought we'd get started by asking you, uh, you know, how did you become an evangelical Christian? And then eventually a Pentecostal and charismatic pastor. What's what's that all about? Yeah, so I it's I, I call myself my own ecumenical movement because I, I've just been everywhere. I mean, I was uh, born, I'm Canadian. I was born in Toronto, uh, Anglican, you know, baptized Anglican as a baby. And uh, my dad was a, a police officer with the Ontario provincial police and we were transferred all over Ontario and we ended up going to whatever church was convenient. We weren't really loyal or dedicated to any one denomination. So I, I never grew up with a sense of loyalty to any one particular right. church or denominational group or theological standpoint or whatever. Um, but when I became a teenager, uh, I, I, I went to a boys club that was run by a Baptist church and I ended up getting like born again there at the boys club. And how old were you then? I was like 15. Yeah, that's common. Oh. Yeah. And then um, you know, we were playing floor hockey and stuff. And yeah. And you know, my conversion was very, you know, un unadorned. I, I was basically handed a a track called the four spiritual laws and oh yeah i remember that one <laughs> i prayed the sinner's prayer and that was it it was done yep and um yep. i uh then shortly after that though um after we were at the baptist church for a while we switched to pentecostal so we were we switched to a pentecostal church the pentecostal assemblies of canada which is a sister organization to the assemblies of god and then from there, uh, when I went to college, I went to Central Bible College, Springfield, Missouri, which is a Pentecostal Bible college. And uh, and then, you know, um, I, I became interested in biblical languages. Um, there were biblical scholars there that I really liked and uh, took as many courses from them as I could. And, uh, I, you know, I took biblical Greek, biblical Hebrew. I ended up going to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary near Boston and took new testament studies more greek more hebrew aramaic you know wow the whole bit and i long story short i was going to start my phd in new testament studies at toronto mm -hmm. and i i was there about half a year and then discovered we were pregnant and i couldn't afford to continue in our studies i had to make money and yep. um i was offered a deal i couldn't put down and that was to uh go and get my MDiv from McGill at Presbyterian College and I could serve as a student minister in the Presbyterian Church in Canada and I ended up getting ordained there. Oh, so, I see. Yeah, and so I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. Okay. And I served the the uh, Presbyterian Church for, mm, i say, seven or eight years. Right. And then switched to Vineyard. Well, yeah. How did you make that switch? That's quite a switch. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, people keep saying, whoa, Baptist to Pentecostal, wow, how'd you do that? And then Pentecostal to Presbyterian, wow, how'd you do that? And then Presbyterian to Vineyard, it's the same thing. Like uh, I, like I said, I didn't feel any allegiance to any one denomination. And I right. found myself gravitating towards uh, churches and ideas that 
appealed to me and felt like I had room to grow and breathe and develop spiritually. Um, the Pentecostal church, I ran out of space there to grow. Um, I, and I sort of really got into reformed theology and everything. And, um, and then, you know, after serving time in the Presbyterian church, serving time, sounds like time, I, was, I was going to say, <laughs> it felt um, like that, huh? <laughs> yeah, sometimes it did. You know, they say you have a choice either with uh, congregations, either spend your time trying to light wet wood on fire or spend your time trying to put the fire out. Right, and, right, you know, right. Apostles is trying to put the fire out, and uh, with Presbyterians trying to light the fire with wet wood. But um, <laughs> so I, Lisa and I both kind of missed, even though I still um, had and have an appreciation for Reformed theology. Uh, we lacked, we we really missed the sort of uh, um, down to earth, laissez faire kind of dress code, more. Uh, modern music. Yeah, right. The vineyard or, style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and we were, we found out about the vineyard and we were invited and I went. And then a year later, I was asked to become the pastor of the church we were going to. And I, I did. So, wow. yeah, it was kind of an, a series of accidents, happy ones, but um, right. I ended up becoming a vineyard pastor. Yeah. So, like your choice of like going to seminary and pursuing this. I mean, you, you, what was, what was that all about? I mean, you, you, why didn't you just go into, you know, a regular profession? Why did you decide to go to seminary and, and pursue pastoring? Well, I wasn't pursuing pastoring. My goal was to be a new Testament scholar. That was what I Oh, wanted. I see. In the beginning, yeah. it was so just my, to be, okay. yeah, my mentor at, <clears throat> Gordon Conwell was Dr. Gordon Fee, who was. Oh, uh, I know uh, Gordon Fee. Yeah. I used to like his books. Yep. Yeah. Um, he's yep. since passed away, but oh, yeah. um, a couple of years ago. But um, yeah. So he was sort of my role model and what yep. I want to be like. And right. So he would preach. He was Pentecostal too, but he was world renowned as a New Testament textual critic. Yeah. Uh, he would really go into the Greek and, you know. Um, right. Um, exegete it, you know. And, yeah, yeah. He was one of the. Uh, I don't. Know, I, I may be ignorant about this, but he was one of the few evangelicals that was doing that. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, he, he was. A, he, and he, I, he, I wanted. Yeah, I wanted to follow in his footsteps. Right. Thing. Right. And, um, at that time, when I when I graduated from um, Gordon Conwell uh, with a master's in New Testament study, with all all the languages under my belt and all this kind of thing, I. I tried hard to find a job in the Pentecostal church to no avail um, because, you know, this was a while ago, was, higher education was still kind of frowned upon. So Dr. Gordon Fee was, um, you know, sort of a, a very unique kind of a, a species right. of being a, a Pentecostal New Testament scholar right. who was respected around the world for his expertise and text criticism. Right. And, and so I sort of wanted to follow in his footsteps, but. Um, so you, you maybe become a teacher yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. That was my goal. I, I'd started theological French, theological German. I started my papers, you know, more Greek, more Hebrew. You know, I, I was just going at it because I just love the Bible. And uh, I was, I dove in, like I dove into the deep end of, of biblical studies. Right. And, so I, I was very, very serious about getting my PhD in New Testament oh, that, and, then, yeah. and then becoming a, becoming a, a scholar. But, you know, Gordon Fee, too, he still preached and, 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 you know, and taught in, in churches, uh, including Pentecostal churches. So that, that sort of had its appeal for me where, you know, often there's a separation between, they say there should be a separation between church and state, but there's also a separation between church and seminary and higher yeah often and i wanted to sort of help bridge that gap and right uh, yeah yeah that's what i mean I, when i talk to people who've been to seminary and so forth and mm -hmm. especially people who have deconstructed um oftentimes they'll say um yeah we learned that in seminary but we didn't have the balls to preach it in church because we might lose our job <laughs> yeah was that is that correct well yeah i mean that's 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 the the fact of it that and and so there was this sort of a, a love hate relationship between um, the seminary and 
the church. Right. And that's never, that's always been um, the church has always been suspicious of higher learning. And, right. um, you know, even in the Presbyterian Church, when I was going to Presbyterian College at McGill University in Montreal to get my um, diploma in ministry there, uh, the equivalent of an MDiv, um, mm -hmm. you know, there was this sort of uh, the, the seminary kind of looked down on the church and, you know, as uh, ignorant and backward and behind the times and um, the the church was always suspicious of graduates coming out looking for church. Right, right, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's changed. No, no, I, yeah, I'm sure that's probably the case. Um, so uh, in your experience as an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal pastor, what, what, what was... You know what were the what was good about that, and what what did you find to be disconcerting about that? What was that experience like for you? You mean when I was in the vineyard, or yeah, in the vineyard, or well, you know, other other churches? Yeah. So I I, I served Presbyterian churches um, in the in in the country for five years. I was a country pastor for for uh, for five years, and then I I went and planted a a. a a Presbyterian church in uh, in a town, and um, did, did did that for two years, and I I just hated. I ended up hating my job because I just got so bored with uh, Presbyterian style of right. Church. Okay, yeah, and and so that Lisa and I were looking. My wife Lisa and I were looking for is there a way that we can still appreciate good theology um deeper theology um biblical studies and all that kind of thing and um uh and is is there a way that we could em em embrace that but still enjoy a more relaxed passionate kind of a community in worship and and we we did find that in the in the vineyard church that we ended up pastoring where there was this respect for studies and serious theology. Um, mm -hmm. Come to find out, though, it had its limits because it is vineyard is strongly evangelical, right? And, yeah, yeah. And and um, how to uh, how to enjoy uh, you know like more contemporary worship and so on. So what was the, what were the limits that you came up against that? And maybe what what you know what was it that you know pushed you to leave leave the vineyard as well? So, like I said, the 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 vineyard church I was pastoring here <clears throat> was very open, and I, I felt very welcomed. And Good. Yeah. Uh, I think though it was unique to that congregation. Um, mm -hmm. I've I, you know, meeting other vineyard pastors and so on. Uh, I found some who were kind of on the same page, but others that were quite a bit more conservative and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but our our congregation seemed really adventurous and willing to explore and to grow and to understand more deeply um, the scriptures and, you know, all this mm -hmm. kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I felt very comfortable doing that. But over time, I began to, as I was deconstructing mm -hmm. while being a pastor, I, I realized that even though I thought this was a huge box I was in, I did come to the edge and yeah, and, right. and, and realized that uh, I, I really, I'd, I'd come to that intersection where it would be better for me to go and it would be better for the church if I went. It was right. sort of that. It became right. clear <clears throat> that, and and we 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 concluded that um, we were no longer compatible theologically, and uh, I went my way, and the church went its way. So, what were the theological points that? Well, were... it's vague. I know it's vague, but um, basically, I I had a very profound like my deconstruction started when I graduated from seminary. The actual okay. day of my graduation. Right. <laughs> when I began to doubt the inspiration of scripture. Right. Okay. And, um, do you mean by, by inspiration, do you mean 
Any inspiration or the infallibility? Yeah, I'm talking about the three eyes, infallible, uh, inerrant, and inspired. Inspired, okay. (laughs) All those things together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just began to question it. And I I wrestled with that because it it was very traumatic experience for me because all of everything I believed, I thought, rested on that assumption or assurance that the Bible was, you know, inspired. And, and I wrestled with that all the way through my ministry in, but in 2009. So that was in 2000, uh, that was in, uh, 1980, 1983 that happened. Oh, and wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, long time ago. Like yeah. dec- I deconstructed for decades. You must be older than I am. <laughs> no, but I, I, uh, I got into the movement in 79. And so in the early eighties, I was just, I was just early and young and naive. But <laughs> which, which movement? The evangelical movement. Oh, yeah. oh, the evangelical movement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so then in 2009, I had a very profound sort of a moment where I I saw the oneness of all things or felt the oneness of all things. Oh, yeah. OK. And I naively began sharing this on my blog, Naked Pastor, which I started in 2005. Oh, you had that na- you had that name for even while you were still pastoring in the vineyard, huh? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so I was just sort of sharing it. And then, you know, when I I I, I felt the oneness of all things and the mm-hmm. connectivity of all things and right. how this is sort of being suggested by science and quantum physics and philosophy and mystical theology mm-hmm. and you know all this kind of thing. Um, it, it was very exciting for me in a very profound moment of just sensing this unity of all things. And um, I, but I started getting letters of concern and so did headquarters and oh, right. all, yeah. higher ups yep. started yep. expressing concerns and I was getting phone calls and I knew, okay, my, my time is up. I could feel yep. the, the jaws closing. And um, it was a year later I left the ministry. Okay. Yeah. 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 That sounds very familiar. I mean, for folks who are not, or who aren't familiar with the vineyard, I, I always called it more the, the most progressive uh, part or stream of evangelicalism. But like you said, there was still a box and there were still limits and, and uh, you can always, you know, rub up against those limits. And then you'll find out actually there's a very conservative theology and under this progressive kind of hipster <laughs> veneer. Yeah. You know? So I, when people say they're not familiar with the vineyard, I say, have you heard of Hillsong? Yes. And they'll say, oh, I've heard of Hillsong. I say, it's kind of like that. It's kind of yeah. got that vibe where it yep. seems really, really cool yep. and really open and cool music and, you know, cool, young, vibrant people. And it seems really open and affirming and embracing and uh forging ahead and right where no man right. has gone before but really <laughs> it's basically quite conservative evangelical theology mixed with you know um modern you know pop music and uh miracles and yeah, right. And there were there were actually other there were a lot of other movements that were similar to the vineyard. I, I went to one called People of Destiny for a while, but we used to go over when I lived in Pasadena, we'd go over and visit John Wimber's church in Anaheim and yeah, yeah. and and you know, the mothership, so to speak, of the vineyard. <laughs> and it was. It was and it was exciting for us young evangelicals who were like, Yeah, we don't want the mainstream you know, traditional style. And it was great. And they they had a lot of great music, a lot of great people. But like you said, it was the theology that you run up against that eventually a lot of people um, leave because of that. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, You know, you've written a lot about and and done cartoons a lot about deconstruction, deconstructing, maybe share a little bit about what what it was like to you to deconstruct the theology that you've, you, that you realize, ah, this is not, this mm-hmm. is too confining for me. I, um, I started like, I, I was invited to a, while I was a vineyard pastor, I was invited to a workshop 
a weekend workshop on hermeneutics. And there was a, a Bible scholar going to be there, a theologian, and um, teaching. And we were given a list of books to read in preparation for this workshop. Mm -hmm. And they were all to do with hermeneutics. And mm -hmm. it included critiques of the uh, German, uh, the French philosophical school deconstruction that was founded okay. by Jacques Derrida. He invented mm -hmm. the word deconstruction. Right. <clears throat> so while I, while I was reading these books on deconstruction uh, and they were trying to turn, warn me about it, I actually realized I, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It the total reverse effect on me. Right, right, right. Okay. It just seemed to be describing exactly what was happening with my spiritual life. And right. it was like an right. aha moment for me. Right. And I decided to co-opt the word deconstruction and use it in reference to spiritual development. And, and so for me, deconstruction isn't a phase. To me, de deconstruction is a way of life. Mm -hmm. And I compare it to, like, so I'll, I'll deconstruct until the day I die, because basically for me, it's asking questions mm -hmm. and taking apart things that naturally crystallize over time or gain weight or uh, you know, the gravitational pull towards, you know, uh, falling into a rut or, or whatever. For me, I compare it to Marie Kondo, the Japanese minimalist who teaches us how to throw away things or give things away and keep that, which only brings joy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, decluttering your house. Yeah. I right. Okay. Use that same analogy, uh, to spirituality where we Marie Kondo our faith. We, we just get rid of all of the clutter and we just strip it all down to the absolute essential. And to me, that's a beautiful place to be. It's spacious, yeah, right. it's open, it's tidy, it's it's clean, it's uncomplicated, it's uncluttered. And but that we have to constantly be doing that because we inevitably, just like we do in our houses, we collect stuff. And and uh, so for me, I'm constantly decluttering because you know we live in an age when we're constantly being thrown information opinions and we're constantly find ourselves forming new opinions and become inserted becoming certain about different things and mm -hmm. for me it's like we need to constantly be questioning these assumptions that we we have it's kind of like in science um whenever somebody makes a, a scientific claim the underwritten disclaimer is that it's falsifiable and so yeah. that I, I apply that too to theology and to spirituality. Yeah. No matter where we end up, we have to understand there's a disclaimer that this is falsifiable, and and we may we may discover that we need to go deeper and right. declutter even. Yeah. Right. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, there, and there's so much. I mean, when when I deconstruct it, one of the one of the main things I learned was. Actually, Jesus was deconstructing. <laughs> he was deconstructing the retributive, uh, punitive narratives in the in the Torah and other Jewish scriptures, and and he was pulling out things from the scriptures, from the prophets, and other sor sources that were actually restorative. And he was he was making a distinction. And uh, I think you know what what you're describing sounds to me like you get the clutter out. Let's find the let's 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 identify some things that are that are either not true or harmful, and just keep the stuff that's helpful and healthy. And, yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And make that and 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 focus on what matters most, which to right. me is the love ethic. But you know. Yeah, or the love hermeneutic. I love human. I've tuned about that uh, quite a bit, um, and upset a lot of people in so doing, but what, uh, what do you I, mean by the love human hermeneutic? Uh, I have one of my cartoons It's one of my more popular ones, actually both for fans and for enemies <laughs> is uh, Jesus is talking to a group of people who have their Bibles with them. And he says, the difference between me and you is you search the scriptures to find out. Sorry. That's uh, right. We've got a ding. That's okay. <laughs> um if you, i don't know if you edit this stuff out but anyway i have a cartoon where jesus is talking to a group of people 
um, with Bibles under their arms. And he says, the difference between me and you is you use the scriptures to try to figure out what love means. I use love to figure out what the scriptures mean. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I mean by the love hermeneutic. Yeah. That's perfect. I, I have that uh, cartoon in my workshop. Yeah. So I love that one. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yep. Yeah. So when we talk, I have one session about um, how the Bible was compiled. And uh, we talk oh, yeah. about the whole, the two different ways of looking at scripture, you know? Uh -huh. So, yeah. And that's excellent. I love that. Um, um, but yeah, that, that there's kind of a, almost a, uh, well, it is, there's a worship of the Bible that's going on and it, it gets so black and white, all or nothing. Yeah. There's no nuance and there's nothing, you know, they don't let you doubt anything in the Bible, <laughs> which right. is crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, and I used to be there and that was the, you know, me many, 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 many moons ago, uh, you know, when I, I started to realize that the Bible isn't in what I thought it was um, or inspired or infallible or errant like I thought it was that, uh, yeah, there's it's like an onion. There's just so many layers. Right. Like right so, down when we when we do say Jesus said, we can't really honestly say that. What we can say is somebody who claims to be Luke said Jesus said. Yeah, so you know, right. you, there, there's that kind of that's what Jacques Derrida did for any kind of hermeneutics or any kind of text. Right. You really have to unwrap all of that. And, you know, if the one saying they were Luke were anti-Semitic, uh, we're going to find anti-Semitism throughout, you know. So th there's all kinds of layers to to understanding or trying to get at the historical Jesus, right? Exactly. And and the other part of it is when, when I talk about the love ethic, I'm talking about that teaching on love that actually to me and to many people is very inspirational. And so it's like, okay, you know, what did Jesus actually say? Well, and the other question is, what is actually really inspirational and what's ugly, you know, <laughs> you know, and if, if you, if you focus on what's really seems like very inspirational, then, then you kind of start looking at it very differently. What, what, what right. rises to the top and what sinks to the bottom Right. And what should we, we be focused on? Yeah. If that makes sense to you. Yeah. It's like, you know, with the LGBTQ um, reality, there's people often come at me with the Bible says, or the Bible clearly says, but the Bible clearly doesn't say. Yeah. I mean, there's two approaches to it. Let's unwrap what that verse is saying. Let's, let's try to get to what was said and what it means and, and so on. And so we can do that. Continue. Right. And scholars will debate scriptures till the end of time, what they mean and, and so on. Right. Um, you know, especially like the clobber verses that are yes. against the LGBTQ community. Right. But there's another approach, too. And, and that is we recognize what the Bible is as a collection of the writings of people doing their best to explain a profound mystery that they maybe saw or experienced or whatever. And, and so, um, you know, one thing Lisa and I promised that we wouldn't do was we wouldn't stone our kids for picking up sticks on the, on the Sabbath. <laughs> right. And, you right. know, we didn't have to go back and unwrap that verse and reinterpret it and try to yeah. figure out what it really meant. Right. Yeah. But that just doesn't make sense for us today. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And no, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You just have to call it like it is sometimes. Um, so let's uh, pivot a little bit. What, sure. what um, you've got this great uh, profession of being a cartoonist and drawing cartoonists, deconstruction cartoons or whatever we you call them. Uh, and I'll put some examples, uh, links in the show notes so people can see it. But what, how did you come to, uh, you know, this idea of using cartoons to help people question certain doctrines and, mm -hmm. and, beliefs and practices in, in the conservative church or in, you know, Christianity yeah. in general. It's kind of weird. I, I grew up in a home where um, there was art hanging on the walls. My dad was a painter on the side. Um, I, so I, I grew up drawing and sketching and painting, you know, every, I don't ever remember not drawing. Right. And uh, so it's, it's always been there. And I've, I've, 
I've painted all through my life paintings and sold them or given them away or whatever. But I always loved a really good cartoon, um, especially one frame cartoon with as few words as possible. And so like my gold standard would be like a New Yorker cartoon. Yeah, right. Okay. Or, uh, you know, the far side or mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. cartoons like this that are just one frame, very simple um, and punchy. And uh, so uh, I just have always loved those. And I also knew, a, was following a cartoonist um, and online, he had a blog and I was following his cartoons and he challenged himself to draw a cartoon every day. And they, they were just really cool. And I thought one day I thought, you know, why don't I try to, you know, I've been yeah. running a blog, writing posts and sharing my paintings and stuff, but I thought, why don't I see if I can draw a cartoon and see what happens <clears throat> and I challenged myself to draw a cartoon every day until I ran out of ideas. I thought I might last a couple of weeks. That oh, was, but the ideas kept coming, huh? 2006. So, wow. you know, it, it's, it, yeah, I keep drawing cartoons every day. So, and I have almost, wow. I think, 5,000 cartoons to date. But yeah, it's just, it just uh, resonated with people. I think there's a, a real, I don't know, immediacy to a cartoon. Like, uh, you know, you, they say a picture is worth a thousand words and it really does act that way where people don't have to read an entire blog post. They can get my point in one frame in one second. No, that's true. And, um, you know, it's very, very fast and very efficient. So yeah, fun, fun to draw. Yeah. I, yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I love, I'll, I'll share one of the cartoons that I like that really I related to was, um, this guy, so this person is walking down the street with Jesus and they seem to be big, you know, nice big pals. And, and then Jesus says something like, you know, I'll see you, I'll see you around or something. And the guy is headed toward the person's headed toward the corner and around the corner is this church trap. Remember that one? <laughs> so like, and with a little string. So when he gets around the corner, they're going to pull the string and the church is going to come over him and trap him. And I was like, that's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's two cartoons in there, actually. There's one where a woman's saying goodbye to Jesus and she's going Yes, around. there's another one like that, right? And yeah. the, the church has a butterfly net and she's going to... Yeah, church is yeah okay, I, right. I haven't seen that one, but the one I use is the one when the guy's yeah. going around the corner. That one, <laughs> there's people walking up to a church and it's up on a stick. Uh, yeah, yeah. People are behind the church with a string, right. and a stick, but there's hearts underneath in the church, like bait. Yes, like and, bait. Uh, that's right. And, hey, yeah. look, unconditional love. Yeah, you know, yeah. So that's that's, that's another thing. Yeah, the, there's love bombing going on, and then they and then yeah. you get trapped in the box, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's powerful. That's the powerful thing about your cartoons is that people can relate. Uh, that happened to me. I can, I you know, I can, I yeah. can, I understand that. Uh, and sometimes you're like so spot on. It's like, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, this guy knows what what's going on in my life. You know, so um, that's wonderful. And they really have helped a lot of people. And like you said, they just um, in a very short glimpse, you just kind of get this epiphany or something that is very meaningful. So it's powerful. Well, that's great. Well, then it's yeah. working. That's perfect. Yeah, it is. It's definitely, definitely. So um, I'm wondering um, what, uh, you know, as you're, you're using these cartoons and you're writing to help people deconstruct, um, what, what is the, what are some of the hardest things that you think people are uh, up against? Um, mm -hmm. Where do they struggle the most? And, you know, how, how are you determining what that is and deciding to do a cartoon on that? Okay, I think there's two main ones. One is interior and the other is exterior. So the interior one is fear. And I, you know, when you've put all your eggs in one basket, basket or all your money on one horse, you know, um, in, in with your faith or your church or your beliefs or whatever, and then, you know, they start to crumble, mm -hmm. that's a very terrifying experience. Yes. Um, it, it, you know, 
you you don't think you believe in hell, but you're afraid you're going to go to hell because you don't believe in hell kind of a thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it really messes with your brain. It does. <laughs> and and uh, But it's terrifying because what if you're wrong? Yeah. And, you know, I just, I was on a podcast last week where the guy was like, well, David, like, what if you're wrong? And, and yeah. it's, 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 it can be very, very terrifying. And I've, I've been going through this now for decades. And even that one question, what if you're wrong? It can still, you can still feel it a little bit, you know? Yeah. But, right. but I think it's because fear is such a powerful weapon um, that religion uses to manage us. Um, you know, validly, the church wants to manage us. Uh, religion wants to manage people and fear is a powerful way to do that. And, you know, threatening with hell or demons or disappointing God or being cut off from the community, or there's all kinds of fears attached to that. And so that's one of the big ones. I think is people. That is big. Yep. I'm sorry. Exteriorly it's loneliness. Mm -hmm. People leaving the church and uh, missing the community. And that's, I think, one of the biggest pain points people feel when they they start questioning their beliefs and questioning their relationship to religion and the church. Uh, I think most people embarking on deconstruction intuitively know this is going to hurt because it's going to put their relationships at risk. And it often does, unfortunately. And and so that's what I think I'm dealing with mostly with people and trying to encourage them, hey, the fear will pass. Mm -hmm. And you need to learn how to make friends. <laughs> right. New friends. Right. Yeah. And new friends. And because uh, we were never taught that. Because when you go into a church, they're served to you on a silver platter. Yeah. There's no effort involved. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, I, I um, One of the things I noticed about uh, when I help people deconstruct and, and look at my own journey is that oftentimes... Um, People are deconstructed. I, I called it a mini deconstruction. <laughs> you know, I, right like three years in, I, I was yeah. questioning the doctrine of hell when I went to Africa and met all these beautiful people and I fell in love with them. And they were happened to be Muslims. And my theology was telling me they're all going to go to hell unless they accept Jesus. But then their ancestors are already in hell because they didn't accept Jesus. And <laughs> And you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And that's how it happened to me too. Yeah. 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 So you, so you, so I deconstructed that, but I didn't become a universalist until later. But, but I, you know, you don't share that with anyone because you know that's, you're going to rock the boat and you're afraid to, to bring it up with anyone. Yeah. Right. Because you've heard the sermons, you've heard that you went to the Bible studies and you know what people think about this. And if you brought it up, you would look like an idiot. You're afraid. Maybe they yeah. would criticize you. They would, kick you out of the church or you might lose some friends, you know, who knows, you know, so yeah. you don't do it, say anything. And then after time goes by it, you know, usually people deconstruct because they um, something very painful or emotional happens in their life and they go, I got to do this. I don't care what people think, you know, and then you start doing it for yourself. And that's when, you know, that's when you can find friends mm -hmm. and what you're saying, it's really key to find, find new friends, find community, and you know latch on to people who have the same kinds of questions and stuff and and start a start a conversation with them mm -hmm. and you can find a safe haven there usually yeah yeah so yeah. so lisa and i worked hard at building friendships after we left the church we lost pretty much all our friends except for a few and um it's very very painful She's busy as a nurse working full time. So let me just get this straight. When you left the vineyard church, you you lost a lot of friends. There, was there was there any like, okay, was there any sense of like, okay, you know, you don't fit exactly, but we still love you and we want to be friends with you anyway. Was any of that going on? No. No. no that, it was my experience too. Yeah. It was. It was uh, hasta la vista, baby. It was it was over. Yep. And you know we've restored a couple of friendships, uh, literally, maybe one or two friendships. Uh, the rest are gone. 
Yeah. And uh, we've built new friendships and uh, it's 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 hard work, but we've done it and we we have enough friends to keep ourselves busy and in fellowship with other people. But yeah, it's it's hard work, but um, it's got to be done. I you know, I tried uh, alternatives. I tried different things like joining different like groups or clubs or whatever, but nothing came close to what I experienced in the church. And, and so I've, I've sort of given up on that kind of community um, for many reasons. That's a whole other topic. But, uh, you know, we, we're very happy getting together with friends and uh, that's, that's filled us. But also back in 2012, um, I, I'd been out of the ministry for a couple of years. And I realized, um, and I was using the word deconstruction quite a bit and um, realizing people were resonating with this. And so I started an online community called The Lasting Supper. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's still going. And it's a wonderful place of fellowship for me. It's online. People say it's not the same, but it's valuable to me. Yeah. Real deep friendships there uh, that have been, they've been there since the beginning and and uh many of them and and it, it's still growing and it's a it's a thing you know so it's uh if you can't find a local community there's there are online communities and also just work hard to make friends somehow right yeah that's true yep so um you have a book that just came out called flip it like this yeah. uh, and uh it's a book of cartoons Yes, um, and and so what makes that different from your other your other cartoons and work? What what what's your and what's your goal for this book? I have that that was my eleventh book. So I have I have several cartoon books, but they were sort of cartoons up to this point in my career as a cartoonist. I have a book on LGBTQ cartoons called The Art of Coming Out. I have a book on deconstruction. I have a book on marriage and deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one, a publishing company approached me and asked if we could work together on a best of cartoon book. Oh, okay. It's the best and of, so right. I had to go through about 5,000 cartoons and, and distill it down to about 135 cartoons. That was really, really hard. Wow. But that's, it's my best cartoons plus 15, but never before seen. So <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was fun and it, it's, it's a fun book. People are loving it. Um, and, you know, sharing it with other people and leaving it on their coffee table or in their bathroom or in their guest room or giving it to their in-laws or ex pastors or things like that. <laughs> no, that's a great idea. Giving it to people that uh, you may, you might want, Hey, hint, hint. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you might get some good ideas out of this, right? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize you had 15 books. Wow, no, not 15, 11. Oh, 11 books. Yeah, yeah. wow, that's but I got a lot. more in, 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 in the works, and yeah. uh, I'll be at 15 soon enough, <laughs> right? You'll be at 15, right? Okay, good. Um, so we talked a little bit about uh, like what people struggle with you know, fear and finding community. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, us, those aside, what, what are some of the most pressing issues today in faith deconstruction uh, that you think? Okay. Because of today's, you know, how different from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you know? The, the, the thing about deconstruction is that, for me, it's just normal spiritual growth. This is just normal, healthy thing. It's like growing right. pains. When we grow physically, it hurts. It aches. It's the same spiritually. It's not a big deal. This is normal, healthy. It's the people who are suspicious of deconstruction, those preachers out there and teachers and online influencers and, and you know anti-deconstructionists and everything that are against it, that are trying to scare people that this is a bad thing, that they, you know they're being led astray or you know, it's demonic or, you know, displeasing God or backsliding mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. And, and, and so that's one of the big things that I'm reacting against today is that whole philosophy that this is some kind of a progressive woke movement. It's not, it's just normal spiritual growth. 
we're just calling it deconstruction because that's what it looks like and feels like. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> no, that's true. Yeah. And so it's the, here's the thing though. Spiritual growth has always happened, but before you either had to hide it mm -hmm. or if you let it out, you had to leave. Yes. Or, or get right. kicked out. Yeah. Those were the only two things. Shut up or get yep. out. Yeah. And now people aren't willing as much to shut up and they're more willing to get out. Yeah. And this is disturbing to the institution. It's, it's, it's unsettling that people are so willing to speak up and speak their minds and own their voices. And secondly, that they're so willing to leave so easily. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, for an institution that has enjoyed centuries of of guaranteed membership and growth from birth you know uh from births from within the community to now de depending on complete volunteerism people willing to and wanting to come and stay <clears throat> it's i think it's threatening the institutional church right now and that's oh, why yeah. so much negative stuff about it no that's that's a great uh point and it's so true. That's the that's the big issue today, isn't it? It's just like mm. I've I've noticed that in the last few years, more and more pushback from the evangelical community. You know the, you know the apologists and the, yeah. the people who have some kind of a sign on their post. I'm the big you know academic professor or, or apologist or, you know, I'm defending the faith. And and when you the, the amazing thing is when you listen to what they're saying. Uh, in my experience, half of the things that are saying are straw man arguments. Oh, well, we don't really believe that. And then the other half is like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just, <laughs> you haven't deconstruct. you haven't looked very carefully at these issues. It's so surface. It's so superficial. And they're just, they're not willing to do that. I think they still have that fear too. So, yeah. um, I yeah, saw not... go ahead. I, I saw some online guy saying that the only reason people are deconstructing is because they want illicit sex yeah that's a big one too right yeah yeah they're well we, we're just sitting around going well you know what i really want to go out and have sex with all these people so i think i'm just gonna deconstruct and come up with something to justify it you know mo it's, most most people have a totally different story i mean it's just like that's you know i mean yeah. you can yeah, enjoy yeah. the same privileges if you were a southern baptist pastor yeah, right, right. And then yeah. that's the other thing. Is, oh, well, if I, I I don't have to even deconstruct if I want that. I can do it in the church and get away with it <laughs> for a while at least. That's a sad, dark joke, but it's true. It's true. No, it's so um no, that that that's a very big struggle for for a lot of people because uh there's a uh, there's a fear that goes on in the background, you know, like you said, you know, what if you're wrong? What if I'm going too far? One of them I called Bartophobia. Do you know what Bartophobia is? Fear of becoming Bart. Bart Ehrman or Bart Cam Campolo? <laughs> Bart Ehrman, of course, became an agnostic and Bart Campolo became an atheist humanist. And so there's this fear uh, of going too far, doing this, you're, you know, you're in dangerous ground. And you realize, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I interviewed Bart Campolo, by the way. He's a he's still practicing uh, the love ethic as far as I'm concerned. Right. Even though he says, I, you know, I'm not a Christian anymore. He's like, well, you know, he's a humanist chaplain and he's trying to help people, yep. you know, come to terms with how to how to live their life and find meaning in their life. And yeah, and he encourages people to to make love loving your neighbor a, you know, one of the one of the the uh drives in their life you know because yeah. that's that brings meaning right and so so it's <laughs> but it just it just amazes me though that that and then on the other side there's a lot of other people who become um stronger christians they at least they perceive themselves hey you know what i'm i'm in i have people telling me oh i'm in love with jesus more than i ever was after i deconstructed you know <laughs> because yeah. i got all this baggage out of the way and i'm just focusing on the yeah. love ethic that he taught right yeah. So, so, uh, but it's, it's an amazing phenomenon. That's for sure. 
Um, Can I just say something about that? Um, sure, go ahead. As an encouragement to somebody who might be feeling that way, because I remember feeling that way. What if I become an atheist, or what if I, right. yeah. <clears throat> what if I don't feel Jesus anymore, His presence, mm -hmm. or you know, whatever? You won't. Every step you take, you will take. This is the difference when you're de deconstructing. You're outside from under authority. There's no umbrella. There's no covering. There's no accountability. There, you know what I mean. There's that, yeah. sort of that, that uh, freedom that deconstruction brings. But the thing is, you won't go anywhere without you taking that step. And so right, right now you might be afraid of where you end up, but just try to put that aside. Don't think about it. Because wherever you end up, you took the steps to get there. Yeah, yeah. No one's going to be forcing you in, no. to become an atheist or something, no. right? And so wherever and you plenty end up, of people who have deconstructed who are not atheists. There's plenty of yeah. them. Yeah, that's <laughs> Believe <right>. me. <laughs> and wherever you end up, you 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 will be happy that you're there. Yeah, Every step. Right. Don't take right. a step unless you feel the freedom and the joy and the release to do so. So, right. You know, um, and and here's a surprising thing is wherever you will end up, you'll realize you were there the whole time. It's just you, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're going to meet right. yourself. You're more authentic yeah. self. And, yeah. and that's a beautiful thing. No, that's definitely true. I found that um, coming, going back to, to my, before I got indoctrinated in the, in the evangelical church, it was like, oh, okay, now, now I'm starting to think like I did before then. And there was parts of that, that me that, I forgot all about, right. You yeah, know, right. so it's really cool. Yeah, um, um, so one of the other questions I had was, um, you know, what do you think are the most, let's say, destructive views that certain, that, that some Christians have that are really mentally and emotionally unhealthy that you've discovered? I think, for for me, it's not necessarily a Christian thing. It's a human thing, um, where, like, because I believe, I don't believe theology shapes us as much as we, we have a disposition, and we find a theology that supports that, mm -hmm. and then that creates this vicious cycle of confirmation bias, and and uh, but I believe our own personality and uh, trauma and all this kind of thing finds a theology that suits it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the distressing things that we see happening right now is very, very hateful, cruel, even murderous attitudes in the church that they think is totally fine. Yeah. I but that's that's a human problem, right? We see it everywhere. But the church somehow has that extra layer of religious confirmation bias. Yes, right, right. You know, yeah, like, um, and, and you know, it doesn't matter how many verses there are on love your neighbor. Jesus came with a sword. You know, so right, yeah, right, yeah. But he was, a, yeah, he's a God is just also wrathful and judgment is coming in judgment, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, that, that's true. That's the yeah. big concerning thing is the confirmation yeah. bias that we're the church is living in right now, and it's and the problem with that is that it gain it's like a snowball; it gains weight and it gets worse, and as it sinks lower, and um, no, and that yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, that's one of the things I address in Breaking Bad Faith is that you've got this two-faced right. God, and then in time, certain times, the two-faced God, the the violent, hateful, you know, retributive God raises its ugly head, and you, you're focusing on that more than the loving God. Mm -hmm. And people haven't learned to differentiate between the two mm -hmm. and discard the ugly one and the and the retributive one. And if they want to if they still believe to embrace the loving one, you know, it's just, but yeah. there's it's, and I think that's what Jesus was doing. He was deconstructing that he was, he was tearing down the, 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 the violent retributive type God, uh, character of God and trying to reveal what God was really like. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And, and especially today with the Israel Hamas war going on and people, you know, taking sides and, and just, um, the 
politics that's gotten very uh, retributive in nature. Uh, it's uh, the us versus them mentality that people mm-hmm. have, and they're starting, you know, really taking it out on them. And because you're not them, us, and we, you know, mm-hmm. we we they don't even they don't even try to love their enemies anymore. I, sometimes that's just crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. um, truly, what about where you are today? Where are you at spiritually? And you know, uh, what have you done with Jesus and your own spirituality? I came up with an analogy. I don't know if this is original with me, but it, this is something I I've come up with. I want to share it sometime uh, in a video. But uh, it's fascinating to me how the more I I dive into the deep end of say theology um mystical theology uh, i'm talking like meister eckhart and mm-hmm. others other um mystical theologians and and saints right. and fathers whatever and then i'm also reading quantum physics and science and when when they start talking around this whole unified field theory and Einstein and then, you know, philosophy, uh, philosophers, living and dead. Um, and then, you know, Eastern uh, philosophy, Sufism, Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, Tibetan Buddhism, etc. It, it's they all start sounding like they're trying to explain the same thing. It's like right. words, but it's sounds like and i compare that to like the hub Mm -hmm. and and then there's spokes going off Mm -hmm. there there and each of these are religions or ideologies or whatever and then there's the the rim that -hmm. holds it all together and and here's the thing about let's say christianity is one of these spokes Mm -hmm. the closer you get to the hub the more unifying it sounds the further yeah. away from the hub, the more distinctive it is and exclusive yeah. it is. Yes, and exclusive. Yes. Yep. And, and that's the same with all religions. The more fundamentalist they sound, the mm-hmm. more separate they are. Mm-hmm. But the more unifying they sound, and it it's closer to the unifying right. idea. That's, yeah. that's where I'm at. That's where I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to. Right. Okay. Assume. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah, I like that uh, that that illustration of the of the wheel and the spokes. That that makes sense. But you can't throw like you need the rim. So, it, something holds it all together. But I mean, the, this all makes the wheel. This all makes it go round. I I'm not. Right. I I don't believe in a world religion or anything like that. I believe in the distinctives. I I think we should all have our distinctives. I don't right. believe that we should all be one race. I I believe in different races and different colors and different cultures and different societies and different beliefs and diversity is what, you know, makes a healthy community, not homogeneity. And, and if, if we can learn to work together as a diversity rather than homogeneity, uh, I think life's way more exciting and way more loving and, and way more realistic. And even though it feels impossible at times, I think it is possible and it's beautiful when it works. So, you know, the, the spokes and everything and the hub, it, it all works together. But that's what I'm interested in is how all these different um, spokes or streams or whatever you want to call it sort of come together. Merge together, yeah. Merge together and are trying to describe the same unifying thing. You know, that. No, no, that yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I think it's possible. I mean, I've seen it happen where, you know, Christians and multi-faith um communities or something get to that point oftentimes it's hard to, to get there because you got to get past the fundamentalist part <laughs> yeah. and you can't do it unless you get past that and then if you do you can actually do it so mm-hmm. right so david this has been a wonderful conversation we ran out of time thank you so we'll um really appreciate you ha- having you on and sharing your story and we'll we'll put some of the um uh, links to your work in the show notes and and uh, do you have a, a particular website you want us to to promote? Yeah, nakedpastor.com is my um, base camp. 
And right, if you, you tell your guests, uh, if they use the coupon code podcast, they can get 10% off anything in my shop, like any of my Oh, great. Okay. So podcasts, uh, they get 10% off. But nakedpastor.com is my home base. But my most uh, interesting account with the biggest followers and all that kind of thing is uh, my Instagram account. But it, Instagram. I'm Naked Pastor across the board. So you can find all right. me. All right. Nakedpastor.com and on Instagram, Naked Pastor. Okay. So thanks again, David. And You're folks, welcome. yep. Folks, uh, until next time, uh, the next episode coming up. Enjoy responsibly. <laughs>